Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross, along with Luke Doris. This is podcast number 15 of Hurricane Season 2020 and number 53 in our series. Nice to have a little break uh, in the hurricane season here, Luke. Yeah, brief one, possibly. looks like uh, things may start to waken back up a little bit over the next couple of days. We'll talk about that. A little bit. Today, we're going to talk with former FEMA director and former Florida emergency management head, Craig Fugate. Craig became famous in Florida during the super busy 2004-2005 hurricane seasons, but he was famous to all of us in the hurricane business in South Florida way before that. Craig knows more about hurricane preparedness and disaster preparedness in general than anybody I know. He'll be along in just a few minutes. We're recording this podcast on Tuesday, September 29th, 2020. And if you're listening at some point in the future, of course, you have to tune into Channel 10 in South Florida for Local 10 News or Local10.com, where you can always watch Local 10 News live. If you don't have TV, you don't have the antenna, you don't have the cable or whatever, Local 10 News is on day and night on Local10.com. You can also download the Max Tracker Hurricane app for the latest on the tropics or the Local 10 weather app for current information. All right, here we are at the uh, end of September. There's about three weeks to go on average. Not that in the end of October, we don't ever have a storm, a Wilma, a Sandy, for example. Uh, but uh, but generally, three, in three weeks from now, we're past that mini peak in the middle uh, of October. And as usual in the autumn, we're keeping an eye on the Western Caribbean. And there is actually a cold front pushing south through Florida at the same time. And a tropical disturbance is slowly moving west through the Caribbean. And the so-called Central American Gyre, general area of low pressure that develops the beginning and the end of hurricane seasons over Central America, looks like it's going to develop. So uh, one thing at a time here, Luke, the, the front. So the thing that's driving the front, this upper level dip in the jet stream, so-called trough, is really sharp and kind of strong for end of September. Yes, it is. And yeah. <laughs> uh, pushing yeah. down some cooler air that probably stops just to our north, it looks like, unfortunately. We were hoping to get some of that here in South Florida. But that front goes all the way down into the Gulf of Mexico. And, you know, sometimes those upper level troughs that, like this one, they can act to grab systems that are in the Western Caribbean and bring them up our way. This one, what do you think? It's maybe a little bit too far north or do we know that yet to be much of a concern? Well, I think that the, I think the trough lifts out. The trough is the scoop in the atmosphere lifts out, but also they only really can pull up fairly strong systems out of the Caribbean yeah. because the trough is in the mid levels of the atmosphere and upper levels of the atmosphere. And in order for a system, a tropical system to get up into that level and be steered at that level, it's got to be fairly strong. And the, indications at this point anyway are and the uh, what the models show in terms of development out of all this stuff going on in the western caribbean is a fairly weak system and i think that's why uh, it doesn't get pulled north yeah. you know we we've, we've seen in the and by the way it sits down there for a long time and a lot can happen between now and a week or 10 days from now as long as that sits there and that that uh, Central American gyre, this general area of low pressure, as we saw over the last few years, can spin off multiple low pressure systems. This one happens to have this tropical wave, tropical disturbance, very weak coming through the Caribbean to kind of mix in there. 
But fundamentally, the low pressure is coming from the South, uh, the Central American gyre, and you get these little impulses in there, and and they have their own circulation, and then if they if the conditions are all right, they can get pulled north. So it's you know it's a complicated set of of uh, ingredients there. Yeah, it's like a a wheel with spokes on it, and the the wheel is the gyre, the spokes. Which one of those could form, will form, we, we don't know, don't know exactly how all that plays out. You get these little vorticity maximas, and they that's what can develop into your system that spin off of that larger wheel. But there, as we record this, there's a 50% chance per the National Hurricane Center in this western part of the Caribbean, where generally the conditions are favorable. You've got the upper level high, which is what you look for. So the, the upper level winds are favorable. You've got your warm water still in play. Uh, there's one and two right there. And then three comes in with this weak disturbance that interacts with all of this. So by late this week, Friday this weekend, we'll see uh, maybe a little bit more. But things right now are very fuzzy. Well, the other thing is that all that's in place, and that's why they have 50% on it, that they're saying really really a decent chance that something's going to develop out of that, at least the tropical depression. But that upper level high, that so-called, uh, what I what I described was a bubble of favorable atmospheric conditions or a bubble of conducive atmospheric conditions for development, uh, that doesn't stick around. That kind of maneuvers to other places. Uh, and and as, the, as that trough that's driving the cold front south kind of lifts out, that moves where that bubble is. So even if something develops under it, uh, then much less favorable upper level winds kind of move over that. And that I think is why the tropical system stays weak. So all that stuff has got to stay lined up for a tropical system to get strong. And uh, that's the unknown at this point. Sure. It's quite a dance, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So anyway, it's uh, at this point we're watching it and I have a feeling we're going to be watching that same exact spot here for uh, a good while. Okay, let's bring in our friend, former director of emergency management for the state of Florida and former FEMA director, Craig Fugate. Hey, Craig, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Brian. So as emergency management director at every level of government, local, state, and and federal, were you ever involved in planning uh, for a pandemic or is that even a FEMA thing? Did you even think about this? Yeah, we planned for them. In fact, uh, we had looked at in the state of Florida an exercise with a, uh, uh, a pandemic due to info, you know, to the flu uh, in shelter operations. And at FEMA, uh, when I arrived there in 2009, we were planning for uh, H1N1. And uh, so FEMA's role, you know, we tend to think of the natural hazards, weather, you know, things like that. But we're also in support of uh, the health and human services, even during Ebola. FEMA was supporting CDC by sending staff to their operations center. So, Craig, I imagine that there are plans for huge disasters and multiple disasters, but did it ever come up before COVID happened to plan for a pandemic and a hurricane at the same time? I'm thinking of a situation like Laura. If that had gone into Houston, for example, it's hard to imagine how they would have handled that. Well, the the, the planning assumption is disasters don't occur in isolation. Um, and so for FEMA, you know, basically covering from uh, the Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Island all the way over to the uh, American territories, Guam, American Samoa, you know, you have to think multidimensional. Uh, and this was one of our considerations in, in 2009 was that uh, pandemic is going to be 
every state and territory simultaneously. And that was, that was, I think, our hardest challenge was getting it through a system that's built upon responding to a geographical area like where Hurricane Laura hit and not having the rest of the nation all being impacted by another event at the same time, that they would be geographically isolated, although they may be occurring at similar timeframes, a pandemic, a cyber attack, and to a certain degree, even geomagnetic storms could affect such large areas that you're dealing with multiple states uh, while other things are still happening. So in this COVID situation, I mean, one of the things that we could conceivably do is try and learn from it from a, a managing a disaster standpoint, right? And uh, unfortunately, we've had qualitatively different messages coming out of federal, state, and local officials back and forth, up and down. I can't imagine that happening if a hurricane was threatening and how you know, the level of confusion, it seems so obvious that that would be very confusing uh, in a hurricane situation. Are there rules or guidelines within the federal system or in emergency management doctrine about how messages at different levels should be coordinated in a crisis of any sort? Yeah, there's there's a lot of plans and procedures and, and uh, you know, best, you know, lessons learned. Uh, but in COVID, they weren't used. Uh, and I think that's probably, I think, what we need to focus on is that we we did have systems, but we didn't utilize them. You know, I worked for Governor Jeb Bush during the 04 hurricane seasons. I worked for President Obama uh, through multiple disasters. And, and the thing that uh, we always focused on was we need to tell the people what is happening. We need to be factual. We need to give them information so they can make informed decisions. You know, this is one of the things, Brian, you've talked a lot about, you know, making sure people understand what the forecast means. Just telling them uh, you're in a storm, you know, watch area doesn't really prepare people if they don't know what those impacts are at their home. And so that was really what our message was, was trying to tell people what we knew and uh, and destroying the myths. Like if we tell people stuff, they'll panic. Uh, you know, they can't handle the information or they're, they're going to act irrationally. And what what I really found, that, and if you look at the research, there's very little research that says people panic when you give them information. But you can cause confusion and you can have mixed messages, which really undermine the public's ability to trust the sources of information to act on that. Yeah, it's the tell them what you know, what you don't know, and when will you know more? And when you do that, people generally have confidence that they're brought into the process because nobody assumes that we know everything all the time. Right? It's That's a natural part of, of any kind of uh, complicated thing. Luke? Yeah, Craig, when you got started in your professional life, did you envision going into emergency management? Were you interested in hurricanes or disasters in general? How did that happen? Well, I remember as a kid uh, getting out the old tracking maps you used to get at the grocery store, or, or they come in the, you know, the mail, uh, you know, the, in the papers that start hurricane season, and listening to a NOAA radio and actually copying by hand the coordinates as they were being put out by the Jacksonville Weather Service office. So I was doing that as a kid, and I remember Hurricane David coming up the coast, and that was probably our, our big scare. Uh, I actually started out in, in fire rescue and emergency service. I was a paramedic. And, uh, you know, the closest I got to being involved in any of this was when Hurricane Elena threatened our part of the state in north central Florida. And uh, I was I was working that shift when it was coming in and dealing with that. Uh, I had the opportunity in 1987 to uh, move from from fire rescue to emergency management when I was asked to to uh, 
work on the county's program. And, and that's really where I, I started was in 1987. I answered my phone and said, hey, will you come downtown for two weeks and update the county's disaster plan? I was a brand new lieutenant fire rescue. And I said, yeah, that sounds interesting. And two weeks turned out to be the rest of my career. Wow. So you mentioned that you started out as a uh, paramedic with the fire department. Is a transition from a job in the fire department to emergency management still a common path? I mean, where do emergency managers come from? They come from all over. Uh, we're now seeing the uh, increasing number of people that are going to school uh, to become emergency managers. Uh, when I got in the business, you, know, you had a lot of people retired out of the military. You had people that had come out of emergency services. Uh, we even had the occasional meteorologist. Uh, you know, in the state of Florida, we had hired folks from the uh, university, you know, Florida State University uh, meteorology program there. Uh, so we were bringing people from all over. But today you're finding more and more people that actually go to school uh, with the primary intent of getting a degree and practicing uh, in emergency management. So you were still in Alachua County, right, when Hurricane Andrew happened in 1992? Yep. 1992, I was the county emergency manager. And uh, the thing that was most notable about that storm was when they started the evacuation on Sunday, you know, we weren't really affected up here. But about 11 o'clock, I got a call from dispatch and uh, the sheriff's office called and says, hey, we're, we're, we're getting calls from our deputies in the highway patrol. What are we supposed to do with all these people that are stuck in the rest areas? I said, what are you talking about? And that's when we realized that people had been driving all day. We're running out of gas, running out of energy. And we ended up opening shelters here in Gainesville for people that were had fled uh, from Hurricane Andrew. So uh, and then after the storm, you came down here, didn't weren't you here? Don't I remember you being here? Don't, don't I, I'm trying to I think because I've known you so long and known you over you know various incarnations of so many different things. But I think thought that we met during that time. What, what no, you, what's your memory of, of after Hurricane Andrew? I basically stayed in the county. We sent teams down south. Uh, we did not have a really good state mutual aid system. Everybody just kind of like self-dispatch and that caused its own uh, degree of issues. So my job was really staying back in the county EOC here in Gainesville, kind of coordinating what activities we were doing to support. Um, and so I really didn't go down during the initial response. Most of my work was up here just trying to, you know, keep the coordination with what we had set down there working. It must have been uh, later in the 90s or just your, <laughs> you know, everybody, I guess I can remember, Craig Fugate was this uh, emergency manager. Then, of course, when you went to Tallahassee, then, uh, you know, we all became familiar with your work. And so Hurricane Andrew, I say very often when I still give talks today now, 28 years later, um, that Hurricane Andrew changed really how we dealt with hurricanes in the state of Florida, in the United States, changed so many things from insurance, but notably to emergency management. I was actually on that committee when we worked on the emergency management uh, system. Talk about the, the kind of fundamental change that happened on how emergency management was organized before and after Hurricane Andrew? Well, we started realizing with Hurricane Hugo that much of what we had in the state of Florida were paper plans that weren't going to stand up in a major event. And when Andrew hit, the late Governor Childs did something that often you don't see with political leaders. He took ownership of the problem and he asked a different question. Most people want to know who was to blame, who you know, do we fire? And Governor Childs asked Bill Lewis, former Senate president, informed the Lewis Commission, which you served on, Brian, mm -hmm. and asked a different question. 
And that was, what do we need to do differently? And out of those recommendations and the legislation, we moved from a collection of state agencies and local governments working independent of each other to begin building a team approach. Uh, you know, that was really the, the nucleus of uh, both changes to state legislation, but more importantly, that we recognized in these big hurricanes, we weren't going to be able to handle this individually. We had to break down the walls between local, state, and federal. And I think we showed a lot of success and built upon what we learned during those storms. We started seeing by 1995 with Hurricane Opal and other storms that we were seeing improvements there. But the, the, the real success of that Lewis Commission report was the 2004 hurricane season response. Uh, where we responded to four back-to-back -back hurricanes, taking a lot of the lessons we learned and the things that we had built upon to move forward away from having a paper plan to having a, a team that could respond to multiple events. And in 2005, sent over 6,000 responders to the state of Mississippi responding to Katrina. Yeah, let's talk about those seasons, uh, the ultra-intense 2004-2005 seasons. By that time, you were the emergency manager direct, management director for the state of Florida. You're appointed by Jeb Bush. Uh, what sticks in your mind from that onslaught of four storms hitting the state both years? Well, you know, it's easy when you look back. It's kind of like almost uh, unimaginable. But when you were in it, you were just getting through each day. and as we went through there, there was uh, some, we did some documentary filming and we we're filming in the EOC all four hurricanes. And the thing that struck me was just how tired we all looked by the fourth hurricane. Uh, but we didn't quit. And I think that was the question we kept getting from the media was, uh, when is this going to be too much? When, it, when is this team going to quit? And I'm like, we can't quit until the storms quit. It's sort of like wrestling alligators. You don't stop when you're tired. You stop when the alligator gets tired and the storms weren't stopping. Yeah, yeah, that's a good analogy. But between Andrew and Katrina, and then we had other prominent hurricanes in the 90s and 2000s, uh, changes were made in how government prepares for and responds to disasters. Does that mean that we're ready for a big, strong hurricane, or can we ever really be ready? Well, the, the thing, when I was asked that, uh, even at FEMA, are we ready for the next hurricane, I'd always turn the question and, and, and basically ask, well, how ready is the public? Because I think we put an overemphasis that government has all the solutions. We can get there with everything and we can be fast enough. And I've been to too many disasters where when you talk to people afterwards, and this was true in Hurricane Andrew, the first responders weren't the lights and sirens. It was neighbor helping neighbor. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, you know, part of this goes back to those of us that can need to prepare to the best of our ability so we can focus the resources on those who don't have the capability to prepare. Uh, but the other thing we learned from uh, Katrina, which we had learned in Florida after Andrew, was if we wait for locals to tell us it's bad, we're too late. And by 2004, we, we were responding to hurricanes with no assessments. Uh, we kind of had an idea by that time, you know, storm's going to hit, we're going to see impacts. We'd rather have too much than not enough, and you never get time back. I brought that to FEMA, uh, but unfortunately, I think that's our trap. We prepare for what we're capable of, and we hope it will scale up. And if nothing else, Andrew taught us, you better plan for the big hurricanes and scale down because scaling up hasn't ever worked in these responses. Yeah. And uh, the Andrew lesson that I think is very often forgotten in Hurricane Andrew, because we've had all these storms come along that had these long lead time forecast things. But in Andrew, 
the the Thursday before, so four days before it hit as a Category 5, it didn't even have a circulation. And three days before, it was a tropical storm. And two days before, it was a Category 1 hurricane, 75-mile-an-hour winds. So the the great plans that that have uh, four, five, six-day timelines on them are not going to apply in that kind of situation. But that doesn't that's not often built into people's ideas, right? Yeah, when I got the FEMA, a lot of the plans were based upon Katrina, where they had days to get ready. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, and I, I used Andrew. I said I was on a call at, on Friday, that afternoon, with the National Hurricane Center on the on the state NAWAS circuit. And I remember Bob Sheet saying that we would probably uh, need to come back uh, Sunday. And I remember some of the uh, South Florida Emergency Management Director said, so it's basically after we have dinner, after we go to church, we're going to do another call. And, and, and Bob, she said, yeah, that sounds about right. Mm-hmm. And little did uh, yeah. we know that Sunday we'd be evacuating for Category 5. We saw this with the uh, Labor Day hurricane that hit the Florida Keys. You know, that was estimated uh, several days early to be nothing more than a tropical depression, became a Cat 5. We saw that most recently with Hurricane Michael. You know, if Michael had been a little bit further west and had gone directly over Panama City as a major Cat, you know, as a Cat 5, mm-hmm. that had been an entirely different response. So these rapid intensifiers, are one of the things that, you know, we know the forecast is getting better. Accuracy's gotten better. Uh, but intensity and rapid intensification is still an area we need more work on. Yeah, I don't care what the forecast is. If you have a Category 1 sitting offshore, that doesn't elicit the same response to, as having a big, strong storm sitting offshore. And these super hurricanes that we've had uh, in the history book, they've all been relatively weak a couple of days out. So uh, when the Obama administration was getting organized, did you have any hint that you were on their list to be director of FEMA or did it kind of just pop out of the blue? I had no idea. I wasn't angling for it. I was pretty happy where I was at in Florida. Uh, and uh, my first inkling was I got a phone call and it was to uh, go meet with the new secretary of Homeland Security, Janet Napolitano, and uh, talk about a potential role. And at that time, they weren't even discussing what that role was. And so, uh, you know, I, I learned a long time ago, you know, my advice to everybody in their careers, you know, how'd you get to where you're at? I said, I answered my phone. It's interesting what can happen if you answer your phone. Mm-hmm. Well, and it lends to how much respect that you have too. I mean, you weren't mm-hmm. out seeking this and people sought you out for what you're known for, what you're, what you were uh, really good at doing. When you look back on your eight years, now you're in Washington, eight years in Washington running FEMA. Is there an event or a situation that stands out above all else? Well, there's a lot of events, but uh, probably the one that just, uh, it's a great story to tell. And that was after Hurricane Joplin, or after uh, uh, the Joplin tornado, mm-hmm. uh, which was an F5 on the you know, enhanced Fijia scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the kind of devastation that you just don't see very often. Uh, and we were out uh, a couple days later with the president. Uh, doing what we call a street walk, where he's going out into the area, meeting with the survivors. And we stopped and we were talking to this gentleman. He was an elderly man on his front porch. And that was about the only thing left of his house. And he, the president asked him, was he here? And he said, yeah, he told the story. And and the president was just, it was just amazing, you know, as he described the, the destruction and hanging on and wasn't sure he was going to survive. Uh, and so the president said, well, what did you do after it was over? And the, and the guy looked at the president uh, and, and just very matter of fact said, oh, I started helping dig my neighbors out. And the president said, sir, you mind if I ask how old you are? I said, no, I'm about 85. Or he said he was 85. 
And I think that was, you know, the moment where uh, no matter how bad a disaster is and no matter how bleak things see, it was always this, you know, we come together and we help each other out. And there's always a few bad apples, but generally I, I see the best in people. Uh, and, that, and that gentleman was an example of, he didn't even hesitate. He just barely survived, lost everything he owned. And the first thing he does is start helping dig neighbors out. Yeah. Wow. What a story. And uh, that community, that sense of community is strong. And they don't, disasters don't get a whole lot worse than Joplin. Joplin was high end bad news. Um, horrible, horrible storm. Now, Craig, a uh, question for you on the decision making process. I imagine this is one of the most challenging parts of your job and, and part of your career. And that would be there's probably a balance somewhere between you need information in order to make a right call but you need to get moving and time is of the essence. How do you balance those two? And was there ever a, a situation in particular that maybe that stands out as a battle that you had? Isaac, Hurricane Isaac, for whatever reason, we got behind on that. And I've been really pushing uh, FEMA to do what we did in Florida. If, it's, if we think it's bad, just go. But we got behind, uh, the state was in the middle of response. This was a very wet storm. We saw flooding that we hadn't seen in Katrina, particularly up in the river parishes. And it was almost as if, well, it wasn't Katrina and we were you know, still waiting for the state to, to formally ask for a lot of stuff and, and we were getting behind. And I, I got really frustrated. I said, guys, just, and I wrote a very snappy email to my senior leadership team. And I just said, think big, go big, go fast, be smart about it which immediately prompted everybody getting on a call going, what did you mean by that? I said, think big. How many people live there? What do you mean? I said, we need to know what the big number is and respond against that. We need to start moving resources for that, and we need to go now. No more meetings. And then we need to be smart at it. As information gets in, downsize the response. Because the federal government's too far away and just not fast enough. And by the time you have enough information to make a great decision, you've lost too much time. So, you know, and particularly with uh, hurricanes, which we can pretty well map out the area and populations, and we have a pretty good idea what that looks like, to notice events like a, an earthquake. Just tell me how big it could be. Not what we think it is, not what the data says, but just how big could it be? And let's start responding against that until we get information, instead of waiting for information to start that response. Yeah, and Isaac was tortuously slow, <laughs> as I recall. And it wasn't that the, the one that involved the, the Republican National Convention or something? Was was that? Or did yeah, initially, I chased it uh, from Florida uh, through Alabama, Mississippi, and ultimately into uh, Louisiana. It came up basically over the Pearl River Basin. It produced more storm surge in the northern part of Lake Pontchartrain than Katrina did because it was further west. And different angle, yeah. Different angle. Uh, and again, Brian, this goes back to your point. A lot of people underestimated this hurricane because it wasn't as strong as Katrina, but it actually had a much larger circulation and it was much slower moving. And so the storm surge, particularly in the northern part of Lake Pontchartrain, the river parishes, was worse than they ever saw during Katrina. Yeah, we had Jamie Rome on here um, a couple weeks ago, and, and he made the point that in eastern Louisiana there at Shell Beach, uh, they had the same kind of storm surge they had in Pensacola because that is such an incredibly vulnerable area to storm surge. Uh, Craig, uh, talking about Hurricane Dorian, um, last time you and I talked in the spring, we were talking about the progress the Bahamas 
were making and their projects to radically change how things were done there, you know, and to build back differently, not build back the same way in order to make them more resilient. But then COVID happened. Do you have a, a sense of how the Bahamas are recovering? Are there, are, is, you know, is that mentality able to be executed uh, in this environment? Yeah, that's, I, I've not heard a lot out of the Bahamas, I, you know, because they are such a uh, tourism dependent economy. And with lack of tourism, a lot of that is right now the financial crisis. Uh, but they haven't done what I've seen other areas do, which is start relaxing standards because of the economic uh, impacts. Uh, unlike Florida, which between all the hurricanes decided that building codes and other things were probably impeding uh, progress. And so they started relaxing things. And then we got slammed by Irma. Then we got slammed by Michael. And maybe uh, relaxing building codes wasn't such a smart idea. In the time that you've been in emergency management, there's been a radical change in technology. We have cell phones, we have the internet now. Has this technology made us safer or more resilient? Or when a big storm hits, are we just back to basics anyway? And our dependency on technology becomes more of a problem. What do you think? Well, I'm a big fan of uh, social media. I tweet, I, I use a lot of these tools, you know, apps and other tools. I think these are great, but we have to remember that when the big storms hit, your phone essentially becomes a brick. Uh, without cellular data, without uh, communications, it's nothing. Uh, and I think we need to continue to reinforce, you know, keeping battery-powered radios in your disaster supply kit. I mean, Brian remembers when everything was going out, he was simulcasting. And many times, the only way people heard his voice during Andrew was over radio stations that were simulcasting. So as much as we've advanced our technology, we also need to understand its vulnerabilities. I live in Gainesville, Florida. During Irma, we didn't get more than tropical force winds, but we lost power, we lost cable, Wi-Fi went out, and I had no cellular data. I, you know, think about it. I'm the former FEMA administrator, and I'm down to a radio to get my updates, which fortunately, I was getting updates. But I couldn't tell initially, had the storm passed, was it going to get worse? Uh, if you remember, Irma was kind of strange in that we were expecting it to stay off the coast and most of the impacts to be over on the East Coast. And suddenly I started hearing about flooding in downtown Jacksonville. But I would have gotten none of that information without a radio because there was no Internet. There was no other communication. So as much as we embrace the new technologies, old school sometimes is also going to be important to be able to get that information in the immediate aftermath of the hurricane. Yeah, I talk about this a lot, uh, that uh, what I say in, in, in talks and talking about communication is that we could actually communicate with people better in 1992 than we can today. Today, we have all kinds of technology. But when Andrew was coming, people turned on their TV. So that's it. Everybody knew where to get the information. They didn't get it from a whole bunch of different places. They got it kind of from one place. And now everybody gets messages from multiple sources and fragments of messages and so it's really on people to assimilate what's known and, and unknown now and harder for individual communicators to have the same kind of uh, impact. At least that's my sense. You agree, you agree with that? Yeah, that's, that's why I think we have to adapt our messages to the, that there is no one format. And we need to communicate the way people are going to receive it and understand it. And that... I think is I think for government agencies has been hard to embrace. Uh, you know, initially the Weather Service and others didn't want to embrace social media. Now they're now they have. Uh, but I, I'm a firm believer in we need one message in many formats to distribute it. 
uh, so that we stay, you know, giving people information. And we know that they're going to, first thing they're going to do is go look it up. I mean, if you tell them something, they're going to go online and go, I need to check this out. But if we look at COVID, what happens when we don't provide the right information to the right people that we uh, have a tendency to play down risk? Uh, and to a certain degree, Brian, you know, we saw this with Sharpie Gate, you know, is when the politics of a forecast don't agree with your position and you start trying to make it fit your position, it gets dangerous. And this goes back to science isn't always pretty and it isn't always going to be what you want it to be, but you want the best information to make informed decisions on, not what somebody hopes the information will tell you. Yeah. And is what we know and what we don't know and being honest about that is very, really pretty fundamental. When you were at FEMA, did you uh, think about communications or, or was FEMA really fundamentally a response agency, you know, and, and having the supplies and, and so forth and, and internal government systems? No, we very much think about messaging, everything from uh, preparedness and the, and the programs there to uh, the architecture and how we operate the emergency alert system under, the, uh, under what we call IPAWS, the Integrated Public Alert and Warning System. You know, while I was there uh, working with the FCC, which is FEMA's uh, the supporting uh, partner for this, we were able to launch the wireless emergency alerts over cell phones. So, you know, FEMA is very much both the technology of getting information out and warning people, but also that content and how to inform and utilize that. We work with our other federal partners. When I got there, it turned out we were no longer using standardized messaging for natural hazards. Different agencies had taken little changes. Red Cross had, the verbiage wasn't the same. And we said, that doesn't work. We need to all be on the same page. Uh, and so we got everybody back together. And, and that's one of the things that FEMA helped coordinate was, let's make sure our messaging on the protective actions we're going to recommend uh, are uniform across all of the groups. So we're, we're saying the same thing. When people hear us, they hear what the Red Cross is saying. It sounds just like what the Hurricane Center is saying. It sounds just like the State Emergency Management Agency is saying. Yeah, that makes all the sense in the world. So during an emergency, people need to hear from local officials because, as they say, all disasters are local. But in a complex metropolitan area like South Florida, there are a lot of different jurisdictions plus the state. Can you imagine a better way to communicate than the way it works today, which is something of an ad hoc system? Well, you know, we, we've dealt with this for a long time. And I think this goes back to what you guys are doing is establishing a brand that people trust, building the relationship. And to a certain degree, you're having to navigate through all the jurisdictions. And, and very much so in Florida, we do our evacuations on a countywide basis. So that at least breaks it down into fewer subdivisions. But this is what I've always told people, you know, when I was FEMA administrator, listen to your local officials. When I worked for Governor Bush, listen to your local officials. We don't know the changes that are going to occur. We don't know the geography that well. We don't know the landmarks. And I think that's the role that local broadcasters play that is so key is taking that information from county and city emergency officials and now presenting it to the viewers so they understand it, just like you do with weather. You know, they don't have to be a meteorologist with you guys, but you can now describe to them what they need to be doing to get ready, what they can expect, the timing of it, and go far beyond just what the forecast starts with. And that's why I think local broadcasters are so key during a crisis is they're one of the few groups that can actually communicate with the local officials and turn that into information that we now can take to the various communities we serve. 
versus, you know, from the standpoint of government, they're just trying to get the word out to everybody. And you have the ability and the time to really now start, okay, if you're on the beaches, this is what it means. If you're on the other side of I-95, it's an entirely different thing to get ready for. Uh, and that's hard to do when you're doing a press conference. Yeah, and now you have the situation uh, here in South Florida, and I'm sure elsewhere around the Hurricane Coast, where cities very often, and any any significant cities for sure, have their own emergency management directors and emergency management centers. Here in Miami Beach, there's an emergency management center over there that that where the you know the head of uh, the city, the police, the fire, that's where they're going to be uh, for any hurricane. They built that uh, Category Five standard over there. As broadcasters, a challenge that I foresee, and I remember it from Hurricane Wilma going way back, is if the city of Miami Beach has information to distribute to its citizens, and the city of North Miami has that, and the city of Hollywood and Coral Gables and city of Miami and, and all of that, you know, our people are usually at the county for good reason, yep. but but the, just the mechanics, there isn't really a good mechanical system of these cities feeding in to our distribution system. And, and, you know, again, remembering back to Hurricane Wilma, where I think it was the city of Miami had all this water to distribute, but didn't have any way really of telling its people. And they're going up and down the streets. Uh, one of the cities uh, was trying to communicate to people, you can go get water over there. You know, it's okay. And anyway, that's, that's uh, an inevitable problem in a big hurricane when, communication systems break down, but you still have local officials making decisions. Yeah. If you remember, Brian, during Hurricane Andrew, and this is, I think, where it got coined, for a lot of people, all they knew was as far as they could see and as far as they could walk. And if something was right next door, they wouldn't know about it. Right. And again, it's not a perfect system, but the more we talk about this, the more we try to get you know the, the, the local officials to at least agree not to schedule their press conferences all at the same time. <laughs> yes, you like know, in go, Dayton, Broward County. Hello. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And again, uh, it's, it's always a challenge. I mean, I just remember when we would do the coordination calls with the Hurricane Center and we'd have the majority of the counties on there and there may be a half dozen that are having to make decisions about evacuations. But they have to do it together because if you start an evacuation in Palm Beach County before Miami does, you just shut down 95 and, and, and the turnpike, and now they can't get out. So, you know, this has always been a challenge in Florida. Unlike a lot of other states where peninsula, we have the threat can cross the state. We have interior counties that can get hurricane conditions. And we see people evacuating literally hundreds of miles during these storms. So it's never been easy, uh, but it's something that in Florida we have to uh, – address and, and, and try to get better at. Well, here in South Florida, I mean, new construction is very strong. So at least we can give people living here in these relatively new buildings a head start on being prepared, right? I mean, you can have confidence that things are built here like battleships, well, these new buildings. But, but what do you find is the preparation piece that many people forget or don't pay uh, enough attention to just in general with hurricanes? Well, I think we've seen this. Our, our message has been going from three days to seven days is what long-term extensive power outages can do. Even if your structure is sound and you don't have a lot of damage, uh, we, we know that from these hurricanes that power outages will be measured in days to weeks, not hours to days. And I think that's a hard thing for people to, to get. And we also know that as many of them get generators and other things, as we just saw recently with Hurricane Laura, 
that we can actually have more deaths in the aftermath of the hurricane uh, from accidents like carbon monoxide poisoning generators. And this is true in the 04 hurricane season. Uh, as, 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 as tragic as the loss of lives during the hurricanes from direct impacts, we still saw more people dying after the hurricanes during recovery activities from accidents, injuries, car crashes, and carbon monoxide poisoning than we did from the actual storms. Yeah, that's quite a common phenomenon, it seems, that we see that report with a lot of storms that move through. What's, what's new in emergency management, Craig? Are there new systems or technology that are coming along? Well, I think that probably the, the, the newest concept is this idea of resiliency, which is uh, one of these words that means a lot of things to different people. But in the context of what we're seeing uh, over the last decade, and that is too much of our standards from where we build for flood risk to how we, how we construct buildings was based upon an average of 100 years worth of weather data. And we had this tendency to not necessarily build to the actual risk, but to the past historical risk. And what we have seen is, one, we don't have complete data sets, as we saw with Hurricane Michael. Uh, the building code there was reduced because they did not have a major storm in that index when they built those tables. Uh, but it, there was never anybody saying it couldn't happen. It just hadn't happened. So the wind standards were lower than other parts of the state. And we saw the results of that. We see flooding occurring well outside of the special flood risk area, which people think is a flood insurance map. It isn't. It's an insurance rate map. It just means if you're not in the higher risk areas, it's less costly. But look at how much flooding is occurring outside of what people think is a flood zone, which is an insurance rate map, and don't have flood insurance and lose everything. And as we see these more extreme rainfall events, what, you know, we get the term 100-year flood, it's kind of lost its meaning. In fact, the Weather Service looking at Houston says what we thought was a 100-year flood may more realistically be a 35 to 40-year event. And so I think what we're, we're starting to move away from is always using our past data to determine what we have to build back to and trying to understand how, as we're seeing climate disruptions and extreme events now exceeding historical norms, for how we built our infrastructure and where we built is how do we adapt to that? Uh, and this was the biggest change out of out of Hurricane or Superstorm Sandy was President Obama. You know, he, he, he turns to me and says, Craig, I think the debate about climate change is over. We need to start talking about adaptation. And I think that's the newest thing is how do we adapt our communities? Because we're not going to leave the coast in Florida. But how do we adapt and build in a way, as Brian says, we build them. When we build them right, they're very survivable. But we still got a lot of old stuff that wasn't built right. We got a lot of stuff that's built in questionable areas. And we're still growing in Florida. And we really need to get ahead of this. We should be looking at our building codes, land use planning as tools to build resilient communities because the hurricanes aren't going to stop. But we shouldn't go through the devastation we saw from Andrew every time a storm hits. We should be better prepared for how we built so that, yeah, we're going to get hit. We're going to take some loss but it won't be as devastating and we'll come back quicker and we won't lose our economies. Yeah, that was one of the great things, maybe the greatest thing to come out of Hurricane Andrew as in spite of the emergency management changes and, and other changes was the, the South Florida Building Code and, and was really the determination of Charlie Danger, who ran the building department in Miami-Dade County, that fought a war to, uh, to make that happen. And it's the example for the world on how you build in a hurricane 
zone. It, it didn't have it didn't have to happen, right? I mean, rest of Florida didn't we, pay we, attention in the same kind of way. We saw this in the rest of Florida in the 04 hurricane season. You know, Governor Bush comes in the office, Republican. You know, wanted smaller government, less regulation, but he also supported the statewide unified building code and getting yeah, that into law. And he's from <laughs> Miami. And we saw this in, in 2004. First place we saw this was Hurricane Charlie. You could literally fly over areas and tell when a roof was built because the roofs without blue tarps were the newer construction built to the higher code. The ones with tarps were often built just a few years earlier to a lower code. And that was the difference most of the time between a tarp or a functioning roof. Yeah. So you've said in emergency management that perfection is the enemy. What did you mean by that? You know, everybody builds these very complex plans. They try to get the perfect answers. They want more data to make decisions. And what I found is that the more complex your systems, the more likely to fail. The more you need information to make a good decision, the slower you get. And a good enough answer is often faster than the perfect answer. And so this was going back to this idea of the most perishable commodity in any disaster response is time. And the faster you get to that tipping point of making decisions to commit, even if you don't have certainty. And again, as government agencies, you know, I like to say there's no problem. We can't make a better solution with another meeting. But in a disaster, you don't have time. And so, you know, this tendency that we, we want to risk free, we don't want to make mistakes, we can't have errors. Uh, a lot of stuff we do every day in government is actually counterproductive. And you have to give people this sense of, look, guys, it's okay if we're not perfect. We just need to be fast and good enough. If we're going to change the outcome, we need to be there today, not three days from now, but the best, you know, a perfect answer. Yeah. Anybody that's lived through a Hurricane Andrew or anything like that knows how absolutely true that is. All right, Craig, uh, thank you so much. It was uh, great to have you on our podcast, and it's great to see you again. Well, thanks for having me, guys. It was a pleasure. Former FEMA director Craig Fugate. Craig has left a tremendous legacy in emergency management because he's never afraid to speak clearly about what needs to be said. You notice that? Yeah. What a lifetime. What a career that this guy has built. And it strike you know, he strikes me as one bold. He th this is a man that can make decisions. He's not afraid of walking around, or he's not walking around on eggshells. Uh, he, he's bold and decisive, and that's what strong leadership requires. And this man has done that for for a career. Yeah, yeah, and he and he thinks so clearly and states it so clearly. That's you know what uh, I've always tried to emulate in, in terms of talking about the risk to people, right? And this idea that people will panic. I agree with Craig 100%. That's not the case in my experience. In fact, it's just the opposite. The people are much likely less likely to feel panicky if they feel informed, if they sure. feel like they're part of, of the process that uh, the whole community is going through. I, I mean, that's a great lesson uh, for today. So next week in the podcast, we're going to talk to our friend and, uh, you know, the most famous guy around that we all know, a famous uh, ex-director of the National Hurricane Center, Max Mayfield. We'll catch up with Max. We'll talk about hurricane forecasting and how it's changed over his years in the business. Until then, keep an eye on the tropics. We're not quite finished yet. For Luke Doris, I'm Brian Norcross. Have a good week, everybody. Be well, stay safe, and please wear a mask. Thank you.